everybody, what's up? It's Chase. Welcome to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. You know the show where I sit down with amazing humans, and this week's amazing human is Dr. Ethan Cross. Dr. Cross is an award-winning scientist, and he focuses on one of the things that I believe is the most important, certainly the most important words in the world are the ones we say to ourselves, and that is where Dr. Ethan Cross's work comes in. He is the author of the best-selling book called Chatter. Now, every one of us has that internal voice, and sometimes it's there for good, but most times it doesn't help us. And we sit down with Dr. Cross today to talk about how to manage this voice in our head. What is this inner voice? We go through a number of really important, very tactical ways to manage it. And at the end of the day, the the, the relationship that you have with yourself determines your mindset and your mindset is very much connected to how you move through your world. So if you want to master your emotions, uh, be connected to yourself, more connected to the world, the world around you, others, people you care about, this show is an amazing vehicle. Dr. Ethan Cross is one of the world's leading experts on how to control the conscious mind. He's an award-winning author, a professor at the University of Michigan, and an all-around super relatable guy, which is what I love. I'm going to get out of the way and let you enjoy this episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show, yours truly, with Dr. Ethan Cross on Chatter. This episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show is brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education. Creators and entrepreneurs, hobbyists to full-time professionals have all leveled up with their careers and their lives through taking courses on Creative Live. And to be fair, they also make this show happen. They make it possible. And if you don't know anything about Creative Live, I encourage you to check it out right now. This is where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best teach photography, video, art, design, music, and audio, craft, and maker classes, plus the ability to make a living and a life in any one or all of those disciplines. Now, you all know that I'm a huge believer in the power of habits, and you've probably heard me talk on the show about how small daily choices add up to design and create the life that we actually live. Now, Creative Live, as a sponsor here in this announcement, wants you to know that they have a new powerful way to make education a part of your daily routine. How can you get the Creator Pass? And with the Creator Pass, you can find new areas to develop your skills. You don't have to worry about just buying one class. This allows you to improve your craft, consider making money if you want to with whatever it is that you're trying to do, to pull on your own threads of curiosity and explore. If you're ready to invest in yourself and take the reins for this one precious life that you've got, then subscribing to Creative Live is designed to push you in this direction. Sign up for Creative Live today. Ethan Cross, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I've been really looking forward to, to this conversation. Well, uh, your latest uh, masterpiece is about chatter and uh, safe to say I know a lot about the voices inside my head. I've been a, a creator since I was, or I identified as a creator since I was a very young person, maybe first or second grade. And uh, to say that I've had voices in my head would be an understatement. Uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover today, but I wanted to, um, first say again, congrats on my favorite piece of thing that I've read from you that I know about you in the world, which is your book chatter, the voice in our head, why it matters and how to harness it. 
Um, but obviously you've got a lot of work in this sphere uh, outside the book. I'm curious if you could, for those who may be new to your work, talk a little bit about your background and, uh, and orient people to, um, to your work. Sure. Um, so I'm a professor at the University of Michigan in the psych department and the business school here. And I've been here for about 13 years. I've been doing research on the voice in our head and how it can undermine us for about 20 years. And I direct a lab called the Emotion and Self-Control Lab, where we have a lot of fun. Uh, we have a lot of fun trying to answer what I think is a timeless question, a question that goes back really to the, the dawn of our species, which is, how can we control our emotions when that inner voice starts clamoring away and, and leading us astray, causing us to feel anxiety or anger or sadness? What can we do to regain control over that inner voice? Um, and so we do lots of different kinds of research. We do studies with children in schools to see how we can improve their ability to manage their emotions. We do brain imaging studies. We track people over time and beep them or text them. I'm giving away my age there with beeps. You text people <laughs> on their on their smartphones to, to see how they're feeling during the day. Um, so that's, that's what I do in a nutshell. Maybe it wouldn't be a bad thing to tell you how, how I got interested in writing chatter, because um, that's an interesting experience that I think speaks to something you said before, which is you've been familiar with these voices in your head for a really long time, and you've grappled with them. Uh, I was teaching a class here at the University of Michigan to seniors on, you could you could think of this class as science's greatest hits when it comes to controlling the human mind. What do we know? What have we learned about how to control your emotions? And the way this class worked was every week I'd assign readings, students would write up their best thoughts and we'd come and I'd ask them questions about their thoughts. We'd, I'd teach them the material, pretty standard. The assignment for the final day of the semester was to flip the switch and have students come to class with questions for me. And the, the, the first student to raise their hand during that final class was a girl named Ariel who had this like look on her face of disdain, which I was kind of taken aback. I thought we had pretty good relations and in the class. And, um, and she said to me, why are we learning about this now? And I had no idea what, what she meant. And I said, well, what do you mean? And, and she goes, well, you know, we've been learning about all of these different ways, these different tools we can use to manage this voice that can improve our ability to think and decide, to be more creative, to um, have better relationships and so forth. Why didn't anyone teach us about this stuff earlier when it could have made a difference? And so my first response was, fear not, you'll have opportunities to manage your emotions in your 20s, 30s, and beyond. But beyond that superficial response, I didn't have a really good answer. And so instead, I did did a classic classic professor move. You know, I, I, I paused and I said, it's a great question. What other people in the class think about that? And, and, and just deflected. But it really stuck with me. And, uh, and Chatter was an attempt to, to address that question, to take what we know about the science and put it together in a way that people can benefit from it. So they don't have to wait to take a, a class in, in college. Brilliant. Uh, I love the storytelling as well. I'm, I'm riveted by that. And I can imagine uh, her asking that question and you 
responding <laughs> in the moment. Um, perhaps there was some inner voice going on while you were uh, conceiving of your response. But to that end, the voice in our head, we often talk about it culturally as terrible, right? This is the thing that limits us. It It is our judgment. It's our ego speaking out. I was just, you know, just... Uh, recorded an episode with Dr. Mark Epstein, who combines psychotherapy as you know, as a Harvard psychotherapist with with Eastern meditation mindfulness practice. And you know, we were talking about ego and and but there are some aspects of our inner voice that are very important. So how do we you know culturally? How can you sort of orient us in time and space to? Uh, be aware that the voice in our head has some good aspects and some bad aspects. Yeah, fantastic question, and um, and a really important one, I think, to be clear on. Because as you say, we we use this term all the time in our in popular culture, and usually it's to talk about something harmful. In fact, I think of your inner voice as a remarkable tool. I've I've described it as a kind of Swiss Army knife of the human mind that lets you do remarkable things. Uh, let me start by saying what how scientists think about the inner voice. When we use that term, what we're talking about is your ability to silently use language to reflect on your life. That's it. Silently use language. So if I say to you, if I give you a phrase that's popular here in Ann Arbor, um, go blue, and I ask you to repeat that in your, in your you know, repeat that phrase silently three times. Can you do, do it right now? Are you able to do it? Okay. You've just activated your inner voice. So a couple of years ago, there was a brouhaha on the internet with some people claiming that they don't have an inner voice. This is not true. Everyone who has a well-functioning mind, who has the ability, and and I I say well-functioning, not casting judgment. I mean, a, a, a brain that is capable of generating language, you've got an inner voice. Now, what does that let us do? Several crucial things. At the most basic end of the spectrum, your inner voice lets you keep a a nugget of verbal information active in your head. So you go to the grocery store, you walk down the aisle, and you think to yourself, what was I supposed to get? Cheese, bread, milk. You repeat that list in your head, that's you using your inner voice. It's part of our memory system. And we rely on it for that purpose every day throughout the day. It's like super basic. We also use our inner voice to simulate and plan. Uh, I, I would actually be curious if you do this, but before I give presentations, what I'll do when I'm prepping is I'll go for a walk and I'll go through what I'm going to say in my head, often verbatim. I'll go through the talking points, start to the finish, and then I get to the end. And this might be a little masochistic. I'll then at the end, I'll imagine what the most hostile, obnoxious audience member will ask me. And then I respond in a very primitive, you know, Brooklyn where I grew up kind of fisticuffs way. Of course, never do that in person. But <laughs> there, there what I'm doing is I'm using my inner voice to simulate and plan. And people report using it for that reason before dates, before interviews. Do, do you ever do this? Oh, yeah, sure. It's the, uh, yeah, you know, backstage before I go to give a speech or something, I'm rehearsing and... I wouldn't know how to do that without language, I guess. So it seems very useful. Super useful. So so those are two functions. I'll tell you about two other really basic but important ones. Self-control. This morning, I was exercising and um, 
the, you know, the instructors were asking me to do really, really painful things. And so <laughs> unpleasant. Uh, extremely unpleasant. And, and I oscillated between talking to myself in the form, okay, 10 more reps, 10, nine, eight, and then lobbying choice words t- towards the instructor who was telling me to do these aversive things, you, know, you <laughs> son of a, so that's my inner voice there. It's helping me coach myself along. And then Finally, and perhaps most magically, uh, not in a in a supernatural sense, but really in uh, an awe inspiring sense, your inner voice helps you storify your life. So, when we experience problems, we tend to reflexively turn inward to make sense of them, and the way we do that is by creating stories. Right? We rationalize things. We try to get to the bottom. We learn from our mistakes, and you use your inner voice to create those stories. And those stories. They give shape to your sense of who you are. They really craft your identity. And so we use our inner voice to do that as well. So memory, simulating, self-control, storytelling, your inner voice does all of that for you. So it really serves an essential function. Excellent. So let's put a pin in that for a second, and I'm going to try and hold two ideas uh, you know, up in the air simultaneously, sure. and then we'll, then we'll grapple with them. So you know, the flip side of the good parts, which I wanted to start with, like, you know, this is a, it's a useful thing biologically for us evolutionarily. We've can, you know, as you mentioned, coach ourselves, uh, use language, memory, all of those things. There's clearly a set of, um, uh, negative or negatively oriented, um, concepts around the voice in our head. We use the example culturally like, oh, the voices in my head made me do it or, you know, toxic language that undermines or beats us up and says, oh, you're, you know, such a jerk. You should have been such a jerk back there. Or you really screwed that up. You, you know, you messed up when you were speaking on stage or you, you know, you know, you knocked the ball out of bounds uh, with two seconds left of the game and turned the ball over or whatever these, these sort of what I would consider sort of negative or toxic thoughts you know, that is, I think, an orientation that most of us would be. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show to help us control if you're a creator and you've got this voice of judgment constantly running in the background, it often gets in the way of you doing your your worst work. So, but based on what you said, this ability to tell ourselves stories, is that is that aspect of our voice? Is that the antidote to negative thinking is the ability to recraft a story? And if it's not that, what is it? Because that's what I want more of. Well, um, retelling your story is definitely one way of, of harnessing the chatter. And so chatter is a term I use to refer to the dark side of the inner voice. And it's a huge problem. I think of it as actually one of the big problems we face as a culture. Uh, and I say this not to exaggerate, but based on the data, we know it undermines thinking and performance, creates friction in relationships, and even impacts your physical health. So it's a really bad thing. Now, the problem with this is that when many people, because people are so dialed into their chatter, we know that in general, bad is is stronger than good. So we have a bias towards thinking about the negative stuff as compared to the positive. So we're, we're constantly thinking of this dark side of inner voice. Many people think that they, they, they ask, how can I silence it? Like, just shut it up. What can I do, Cross? Tell me. 
And my answer to them is you don't want to shut it up. You want to harness it. And what I mean by that is you want to turn the volume down on the chatter to free the positive side of the inner voice up to do all of the amazing things that it can do. Um, is creating stories involved in that? Yeah. And I can tell you a little bit about how to do that well. But it's by no means the only tool we possess for harnessing our chatter. One point I feel really strongly about is that there's no single magic pill that you can take to manage your chatter. Instead, what we've learned over the years through science is that there are multiple, multiple tools that are out there. I talk about close to 30 different tools that people can use to manage our chatter. Different combinations of tools work for different people in different situations. And I think that makes a great deal of sense when you think about how remarkably complicated all of us are, right? Like think about the complexities involved in the people you know. We're all, we've got our own baggage, our own way of making sense of the world. Why would one tool work for everyone? That's not the way the way it works. Um, so it makes, uh, makes a ton of sense. It makes a ton of sense. So, so let's, let's, let's get into some of the tools. Um, shall, shall we do that? Yeah. Yeah. Please. I was obviously attracted to the storytelling one and it, it is, uh, one that I have some personal experience with, but I, I would love for you to, maybe if you could, this, this might be asking a lot cause you, you know, you've named so many in the book and you just talked about 30, but just <laughs> generally speaking, let's stack rank them according to, you know, power impact and maybe availability because let's just be real most people want to put this they're listening to the show right now and they want sure. to put this to work in their own lives so starting with number 30 that is a you know ha has <laughs> less power than number one which is the most powerful would be counterproductive so let's start at the top all right let, let's do it and just to give listeners um a framework for thinking about these tools and where to find them i find it useful to break them down to three buckets Tools you can use on your own, tools that require other people, and tools that involve the physical world. And I really want to make sure we get to the physical world, given your background with yes. the physical world. Um, so things you could do on your own. Um, lots of things, lots of tools here. One of my favorites is something called distanced self-talk. And what it involves doing is remarkably simple. The next time you're struggling with a problem, try to coach yourself through the situation like you would give advice to someone else. Now that's off. That's easier said than done. So how can we do that more skillfully? Use your name as you try to work through the problem. This is my first line of defense for chatter. When I detect it brewing within me, I think, all right, Ethan, what are you going to do here? When you use your name to think about yourself, what that does is it shifts your perspective. It gets us to relate to ourselves like we're relating to another person, like we're advising other people. And what we know from lots and lots of research is that it is much, much easier for us to give advice to other people than it is for us to take that advice ourselves. You know, it's remarkable in, in a lot of the studies we do, we get people to share with us their chatter. And sometimes they don't want to share it with us. They're, they're actually embarrassed to reveal what they're thinking about themselves, what they're telling themselves. They are saying things to themselves that they would never say to their worst enemy, let alone their best friend. I think there's like a really powerful insight there, right? What would you say to your best friend? How can we say that to ourselves? Use your name to help you do that. Um, now, 
in popular culture, we often um, we often think about people who refer to themselves using their own name as narcissistic, uh, sometimes a little bit out of touch with reality. Um, I want to give you a couple of caveats on how to use the strategy. One thing I would not recommend doing is walking down a busy city street as you talk to yourself out loud using your own name. You don't want to do that. If you feel compelled to use this strategy out loud, make sure you have a pair of Air, Air, you know, AirPods in or you know, do it in the confines of your own home. But throughout history, we've actually seen people using this tool and there's a great deal of scientific research that validates it. So that's one easy thing you could do. Another low-hanging fruit strategy with you know, big upshot is to do something called mental time travel. So, you know, the chatter, oh my God, I'm never going to get this project done. I, what, you know, this is awful. How am I going to deal with this? When you find yourself getting stuck like that and chatter gets us stuck because it zooms us in on the awfulness of the situation, right? The only thing we could think about is this problem in front of us. Um, jumping into the mental time travel machine can be really helpful. So how am I going to feel about this, this thing I'm struggling with a week from now or a month from now or a year from now? One of the things we know from emotions, not only from the research side, but from our own personal experience, most of our emotions fade with time, right? They come and go. Those emotions may be more prolonged for some kinds of experiences than others, but you could just jump into that mental time travel machine and go a little bit further in time. And when, when people do this, what they realize is that what they're going through right now, as awful as it is, it will eventually fade. And that does something really powerful for us. It gives us hope that tones down the volume on our chatter. So you can mental time travel into the future. You can also go into the past. And I do this a lot when it comes to COVID, uh, you know, Times are not not great, but I think, well, how, did, how does what we're going through right now compare to the Spanish flu pandemic of 1917 or 18? Uh, you know, we didn't have Zoom back then. We didn't have takeout. We didn't have a lot of the, of we didn't have vaccines developed in, in a few months. So that helps put things in perspective. And, and when the Spanish flu doesn't do it, I just go further back bubonic plague, mid, middle, you know, medieval times. Think about how crippled society was then. So what I'm doing here is I'm broadening my perspective and I'm doing it with pretty easy to use tools. That's part of what strikes me is, you know, for, is I don't think there's anyone who's listening and watching right now that would say that their negative self-talk hasn't harmed them in some way. And it's fascinating to me and in reading chatter that it's these tools are available for us. You know, they're, they're right here. Like even just this ability to treat yourself kindly as you would a best friend or a colleague by using your own name. That is very simple. So my question then is simple is not always easy. And what is, is, is there some sort of reminder mechanism that you have, uh, coached other people, uh, whether they're students or in your writing, you know, there are some techniques and chatter, but I would love for you to share with them, like your awareness that these tools are here for you, that the, the practice of putting them into use, it's like anything, right? That's a muscle, just like working out or your workout this morning. But if it's right there and we don't use it, we, we, ha we, we, we how do we 
put these into practice and awareness clearly seems like the first step. What, what would you say to someone who's not aware that they're in this cycle until they beat themselves up for 10 minutes? Well, I, I think you now you hit the nail on the head. Awareness is, is key. Just having a vocabulary for understanding what chatter is, I think is crucially important. You know, I've got two young kids and, um, both of them are at the age where they can begin to experience a little chatter at times. And it's been really, you know, it's so fascinating as, as a scientist who studies this stuff to, to begin to see it start in your children. And, um, you know, before talking to my daughter about this, what chatter is, she doesn't even know, is this normal to be, you know, having these upsetting thoughts? Are they something you can control or not? So I think just educating people about what is happening in your mind is crucially important. And then making them aware of the tools that are out there. Now, there's a lot of hard science, complicated work, you know, neuroimaging, dorsal cingulate cortex. I could throw out big phrases that went into the identification of these different tools. But as you say, they're really, the take-home points here are really easy. And I think there is power in that because it makes them really accessible. We know people are more likely to use things that are accessible. So how do you get people to actually follow through and use these techniques in their life? Um, you want them to know what those tools are, and then you want to also have people be motivated to use them, right? And I think with chatter, because it's often so painful, uh, there is motivation to to end the chatter. I think the problem is we often just don't know what the tools are. We just we just stumble on the tools. Sometimes the tools we stumble on work for us, and maybe we keep using it. But other times we we stumble on tools that aren't very good for us. Um, which is actually a, a great segue to to another tool that was not planned, by the way. Anyone who's listening, that just that just happened. But um, <laughs> uh, so let's talk about a tool that many people reflexively use that science tells us actually isn't helpful for managing chatter. Uh-huh. Um, so other people, other people in our lives can be an incredible resource for our chatter or a huge vulnerability. Now, many people think, because of the messages that culture provides us, that the way to manage your chatter is to find someone to just vent your emotions to. So just find someone, call them up, social media, and just unload whatever's going through your head. There's been a lot of research on the consequences of venting. And what we know is that venting about your chatter to someone else this can be really good for strengthening the friendship bonds between two individuals. It does feel good to know that there's someone there who's willing to take the time to empathically listen to me and connect. But if all you do in a conversation or text or Twitter exchange is vent, effectively what that does is it keeps all of your negative thoughts and feelings activated. So people leave those conversations just as upset or even more upset than when they began, right? So like when you're venting, you wouldn't believe this, Chase. I, I, you know, just yesterday, this colleague said this, can you believe that? And I felt like an, you're just keeping it all, all, all active. So what's the solution? The solution is to not, to, it, the solution is to not stop talking to other people, 
The solution is to find people who are skilled at providing chatter advice. And, and this is a, not too complicated, but finding these people is not always easy. People who are skilled at providing chatter advice do two things. The first thing they do is they do take the time to listen, to empathically connect. They, it is important to share what you're going through to a certain degree. I need to learn about what you're dealing with before anything else can happen. But at a certain point in the conversation, after a person has learned a little bit about what you're going through, they start trying to cue you to look at that bigger picture. They start trying to give you advice based on their own experiences, or they try to pull it out from you. So Chase, but you've dealt with really obnoxious professors on your show before. How have you dealt with the other ones? You know, uh, or, or let me tell you, here's what I do when I get someone who is challenging to work with. I, and so, so uh, essentially, you want to start establish the emotional connection but then try to get them to go broad. That is the formula for being a good chatter advisor to someone else. Now, there is an art to doing this well. And, and what I mean by that is, I wish I could tell you that the exact moment in time when you should switch from just listening to trying to give that person advice, there's no data that support that as far as I'm aware. You need to you need to kind of feel out that exchange. And so sometimes like when my wife comes to me with some issue she's experiencing chatter about, she'll tell me about it. I'm there. I'm I'm I, I'm warm and I'm engaged, I like to think. And uh, at some point I'll say, oh, it's terrible. You know, can, can I can I offer you I have an idea. Can I let you know? And sometimes her response is no. Just I just want to be keep, yeah, I just just keep listen. listening. Yeah. I just want to keep talking. And okay, and keep going. You know, I take take some more tea and I we keep the exchange. At other points in time, though, she's like, Yes, please tell me. What do you think? That's why I came. So you want to feel that out. Um, and, and that's the art to providing good chatter support. That's also that would be in the second bucket. Is that fair to say the first one of these self-tools? And is would you categorize that in the second bucket as something external to you? Yeah, exactly. And what's interesting, an interesting connection is, so I told you about two distancing tools. Mm -hmm. A lot of the things that we could do on our own um, involve taking a step back, becoming a fly on the wall to our own experience. And so distance self-talk helps you do that via language. Mental time travel helps you do that through imagination. Uh, there are lots of other distancing tools out there. Writing expressively, journaling would be another. But when you talk to other people in the way I just described, in that situation, the other person is the agent that's helping you distance, right? And they are in a prime position to help you do that because the problem is not help happening to them. So they can be objective about this situation. What about this third, this third bucket? So this third bucket is, is one that I had the most fun exploring when I was researching chatter. Um, so what we're talking about here are, are tools that exist in the physical environment, the world around us. And it's really interesting because before, before I started getting into this work, I was blind to many of these tools. And sometimes I stumbled on them but I, I didn't really know how to purposefully harness them. So I'll tell you about a few. Uh, one tool that I actually would use a lot, 
but I didn't know was doing anything, involved organizing my spaces. So I'm a pretty, I like to think of myself as having a relatively organized mind. I can think linearly and logically, but when it comes to my spaces, my home, I'm a disaster. Uh, you know, there's this, there's usually like a trail of clothing from my closet <laughs> to the bathroom. My, my office has papers all over the place. Oh, the uh, bookshelf behind you looks pretty good. I don't know. Well, that's because we were talking, <laughs> you know, if, 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 if you want some credibility, you want me to pivot the shot over, I can show you the side. I'm not lying. Um, so, but whenever I experience chatter, I do something for me, which is out of character, which is I, I make piles. I put things away. I fold my laundry. When I'm done with my laundry, I go to the kids' room and I put their stuff away. Then I go to the kitchen and do the dishes. I like to joke, but I think there's a grain of truth here that I, I, I legitimately think that my wife secretly wants me to maintain a low level of chronic chatter because she is happy with the condition of the home as a result. Now, that was something that I never did purposely. But what I've learned through reviewing the literature is that this is what we call a form of compensatory control. And it's a useful tool for managing chatter. So when you are experiencing chatter, you often feel like your thoughts and feelings are out of control. You're not in the driver's seat anymore, right? Your chatter is running the running the train. We can compensate for that experience by exerting control around us. So by organizing your spaces, that gives you a sense of control. And that can be very useful for when we're managing that kind of aversive voice in our head. So that's one very simple thing you can do. This is also, by the way, one of the reasons why so many people practice rituals. If you ever watch sports, like many teams across different kinds of sports during stressful moments, athletes resort to doing seemingly wacky things, right? Before they've got to sink the free throw or take the goal kick. Rafael Nadal's um, one of the best exemplars of this. He picks a wedgie out of his shorts and then tussles his hair before every single serve. The same principle is at work there, right? A ritual is under your control. And so if you perform it when you're experiencing chatter, it helps. Um, so that's one environmental tool. Another, and I'd love to get your your take on this is experiencing awe. Um, awe is an emotion we experience when we're in the presence of something vast and indescribable, like an amazing view or, um, you know, a tree. I'm looking at my window. It's been here for hundreds of years. Like that's pretty crazy. Um, you can find it in the natural, in the man-made world as well, in the form of skyscrapers. Or I still am awe-inspired when I when I get into an airplane. Like I understand the physics of how it works, but I, I think to myself, it wasn't so long ago that we struggled to start fires. I still do. I can't do it. But how did, how did we get from like starting fires, struggling to start a fire to figuring out how to blast ourselves off in a, in a, in a tube and land <laughs> safely somewhere else? Like that to me just fills me with awe. And what happens when we experience that emotion is it leads to something that we call shrinking of the self. So you feel smaller when you contemplate something vast and indescribable. And when you feel smaller, so does your chatter. So, you know, seek out awe. 
I go for walks in the in the park around around my house. I I I, I look at my kids and try to experience that, and and that's another tool. But but like, have you had that experience on on your quests and and, and different kinds of jobs that you've had with photography well, and so forth? Yeah, I, I would say that I that might be my. Uh, again, some of this learned from reading your work, some from uh, an attempted life at, at practicing managing that once I realized as a young athlete that the, you know, the phrase, the most important words in the world are the ones we say to ourselves and I could really affect my own mindset. And when you saw the connection between mindset and performance, I started getting very interested in how to control the self-talk. So I have two primary ones. I'm going to first use the simple one to just... Uh, tack it up on our Bolton board and then I'll go to this this third bucket that you're talking about. One is a phrase that I learned from a sports psychologist that uh, helped train us on the Olympic development soccer team, which was if you make a mistake during a game, just a very simple phrase that you can s- just like a muscle, almost like respond to yourself in the moment with this phrase. It's a caring phrase. That you say, that's not like me. Next time I'll and then fill in the blank with the behavior you wanted. It was kind, it was aware, it acknowledged the mistake, but it also managed it. Uh, you know, there's the, the Ted Lasso phrase, have a memory like a goldfish. And so it just basically dispensed with the any negative self-talk. It addressed it, sort of, okay, I hear you. It's not invalid. You certainly made a bad pass there. That's not like me. Next time I'll complete the pass and, you know, fill in the blank with the rest of the story. So that was incredibly useful, and I put that in that in your first bucket. But going to the third bucket, which I think is more interesting um, because it helps develop a very comprehensive and awesome life if you do start to have this uh, an approach, a feeling of gratitude. And I usually get that feeling of gratitude, not just by saying, well, I'm grateful for, but I'm like, how freaking lucky am I to be one in 400 trillion that I'm even doing all this stuff right now that I'm a, you know, an able-bodied human doing the thing that I'm doing right now, walking in the forest. You start to, um, I think the, the, the profound experiences of that nature provides probably, you know, cultivate this experience that you're talking about and to be in awe that you're sitting on a plane on your laptop moving at 600 miles an hour from New York to LA that, you know, that's, that's, uh, one example, but I find that they're everywhere. Nature for me is being outside is the most, you know, the, the easiest, it provides me the best access, but I would say that desire to see the world as magical and rather than, um, dismissing coincidences like, Oh, I was just talking about this and here I am, you know, talking to Ethan and he said the same thing rather than saying interesting coincidence and moving on. I'm saying, wow, isn't the universe an amazing place? There's, there's definitely something here. So I, I have been spending, I would say more of my time in that third bucket, this, 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 um, I don't remember the name that you used for it, but it, it makes the world so much more interesting. It's a way to be kind in the world and to be gentle. It is, um, I find it very, very powerful as a way to control my my inner thoughts. The fact that I even have an opportunity to respond here, I get to choose my response. Wow, I don't have to be victim to this, you know, this 
the the rat race or the you know this other input or the how the old me would respond the fact that i'm in control of my emotions right now how grateful am i for this how connected is the universe yeah so i want to point out two things that you said um one is just an observation actually which is both of those tools do something very powerful which i think is a common theme for how many of these tools work they broaden our perspective they break us out of that tunnel vision of really that negative thought loop, which is what chatter is. And they get us to see that bigger picture. And in that bigger picture, solutions often lie to, to feeling better. And so um, it's just remarkable to me. I am awe-inspired at how many different tools are out there to help us do that. Uh, but the other thing that really strikes me from your, your description of how you manage your chatter is you have a sense I'm intuiting here about what allows you to feel better when the chatter is brewing. Like you start to feel grateful. You think about this bigger picture. And so that to me um, tells me that you're being very deliberate about how you choose to engage with the world. You're not just being reactive, right? You're actually seeking out, you know where to look, so to speak, to find tools to deal with chatter landmines, right? And, and that, I think, is a learnable skill, right? People often ask me, hey, do you ever experience chatter? You do science, you study this stuff, you wrote a book on it. Of course I experience chatter at times. I'm like, goddamn human being, you know? <laughs> yes, <laughs> welcome to the human condition. But what I am pretty darn good at is once I detect it starting to brew, I know exactly where to look. I know the different tools that work for me. And, um, and that's something I think many people would benefit a lot from. And that was a big reason for, uh, for writing that book, this book. Well, you know, I think that foundationally or fundamentally that is awareness, right? We have one thing in this world and that is our attention and our ability to direct it intelligently and intentionally is if not our highest calling, it's certainly right up there because it does control you know, or manage in, in, I think, in the best way possible, the human experience. And, you know, part of the, you know, being aware of a problem is whether it's in your company or in your life or your marriage or your relationship, you know, being aware that a problem exists is oftentimes the first step in being able to manage it or, you know, turn a frown upside down or, or uh, however. And yet, this is part of what makes, you know, here I am talking about, these are the two tools I use. And, you know, you're a, you've been studying this lifelong. And then at the end of the day, you're like, God damn, I'm a human being. And it's remarkable to me that as practiced as we could be, or as studied as you could be, that it's inevitable. And so to, that makes me want to ask the question, do you have a, a recipe for, the fact that or what, what we ought to do when we recognize that we are in this loop, despite that we are, you know, yogis or despite that we're, you know, professors who've literally written the book on the topic, you know, how can we remain vulnerable, acknowledge that shit, no matter how practiced we are, how enlightened we are, this is still going to pay us a visit. You know, what's your advice to those, you know, those folks who are right now maybe beating themselves up because, oh gosh, if, uh, you know, 
uh, <laughs> if we've got this book, why don't, why don't we just learn it and automatically, you know, be done with it and be on to the next thing? Well, I think, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that negative emotions aren't a bad thing per se. Like a lot of, a lot of our culture right now, there's a, this toxic positivity movement sweeping through the lands and, uh, a lot of people yearn to experience a life free of all negative emotion. This is not a life that anyone actually would want to have because negative emotions are functional in small doses. There is value in being able to experience pain. Like kids who are born into the world without the ability to experience pain, this happens every year due to a blip of genetics. They actually die young because they don't know to pull their hand away from a stove when their skin starts to burn. Imagine if you never felt the sting of social rejection. You might not learn how to interact well with another set of individuals as a result. So emotions in small doses, like don't beat yourself up if you get you get negative at times. What you do want to prevent is those negative emotions from being prolonged, which is what chatter does. So how do you do it? Um, come up with, with a specific plan. We call these if-then plans. Fancy name for this are implementation intentions. I like if then better. <laughs> if I experience chatter, then I'm going to do this. Ahead of time, come up with what that plan is. I have uh, different types of interventions for my chatter. My first line of defense, if I, I feel it coming on, is I, do, I use distant self-talk and mental time travel. I don't know, four out of 10 times, that's all I need to do. And it just... All right, Ethan, here you go again. You're not going to go down this path. It wasn't that bad what you said. Lots of other people do it, and you'll feel better about this tomorrow. And that's usually enough. If that's not sufficient, then I take it to DEFCON level two, and I consult my chatter board. I, I have thought really carefully about who my chatter advisors are, and I have a trusted board that I consult with. I've got... Four people when it comes to personal stuff, six or seven for professional stuff. And they are a remarkable asset. And I avail myself of it if the other tools aren't sufficient. Um, and if that doesn't work, I'll, I'll also go for a walk in nature and um, I'll organize my space. So those usually that's sufficient for me. And although I still can experience chatter at times, I have gotten really good at making it pretty short. And so I think there is uh, enormous potential to help folks who are listening who do experience chatter at times by knowing about these tools. Yeah, I think one of the um, experiences that I've had in managing my own um, chatter uh, and in you know, on this show and across my life, I try and if you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with, I try and surround myself with you know, incredible humans. And I think what, what an often a, a, a misunderstanding is that this is not about not feeling emotions. This is not about not having any self-talk or not about not getting angry or not about not. I think the goal, and I'm curious to hear your thought. It, 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 my goal with this, and maybe you can pass judgment or give me advice or, uh, or help paint the picture here because we, we can't, you know, it's sort of like pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. We can't avoid, uh, 
anger as a human emotion, that it will enter our lives is inevitable. Same with fear and joy and all these things. The goal is not, to, I wouldn't, shouldn't use joy because the goal is not to avoid these negative emotions or this negative self-talk. The goal is to be aware of it and then to minimize the negative impacts that it has and to do so, to feel the feeling. And sometimes grief, for example, could take a very long time to heal from, to feel the emotion, to feel the feeling, and then manage it using these tools. I think it's a common misperception. My my ex experience says that I, I judge myself for getting mad at all. Like it's just traffic. The person just cuts you off. If they weren't supposed to be in front of you, how did they get there? Let's let's move on and try and minimize that experience of it or the the impact that it has on the rest of my day. And is it? I just just maybe respond to that because I don't. The goal isn't avoiding this stuff, right? No, I mean, you couldn't have said it better. I mean, what the way you've just described all this is directly consistent with how I view this timeless question of how we can properly manage our emotional lives. Negative emotions are useful. You don't want to get rid of them. Even if you wanted to, you wouldn't be able to because they are hardwired into how we operate as organisms. What you yeah. want to do is figure out how to minimize them, how to prevent them from escalating. And that's what these tools um, let us do. There's actually a, a, a very powerful anecdote. I tell this story in the book that I think about often because this point you're making is, is a very common in observation that people want to just get rid of all the bad stuff. Uh, I tell this story about a woman named Jill Bull Taylor in Chatter, who was a Harvard neuroanatomist who working at the very top of her game and she experienced Chatter like so many of us. And her desire was to get rid of this voice, to silence it, just shut it up. And she got her wish one morning when she was exercising in the form of a stroke that she experienced. And the stroke was localized in the left hemisphere of her brain and it temporarily prevented her from being able to use language. So she lost the ability to speak to other people as well as herself. And I would challenge you and anyone listening to just think about what that might be like for a moment to not be able to use words silently to reflect on your life. I don't even know how to contemplate Pro that experience. How do you, how do you process it? How do you process that language? Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just don't even know. So what's remarkable about her story is initially she described the experience as euphoric, right? She's just had a stroke, can't speak to anyone else or herself, euphoric because the chatter's gone. But as time went on, it no longer became euphoric and then instead became highly disruptive because she didn't, she couldn't plan, she couldn't, couldn't control herself, couldn't remember things. And so her experience is a, a powerful reminder that the goal here is not to get rid of anything. It is to minimize the negative impact that it has. Let's go back to your student. I think, you know, you open with this, uh, you're, you're giving this lecture and the first question is like, why aren't we taught this? And so this, you know, maybe we can think of this as directed to the parents who are listening. Um, I don't have children. I'm the proud uncle, real uncle, in some cases, uh, funkle to a lot of kids in my world. And 
this these tools that I have worked so hard to cultivate. I feel like I'm just scratching the surface now. But had I started younger, I think uh, I would have. I would be excited to. Um, I would be excited to know what that experience of childhood and, and young adulthood w- would have been like had I had some of these tools at my disposal. So, you know, for those, for your student, um, I know this is a, I think you said it was a graduate or you're teaching seniors. Um, but if, if you think about this in, in, you know, the classroom or, or, or people talking to their kids, what are the things, how do we empower the next generation with these tools, given we know like how profoundly they have, effect- I know how pr- profoundly these tools have affected my life. Clearly the book is resonating, selling and you know, bestseller all over the place, but why aren't our kids learning it? What can we do to empower them with these tools? Well, I think we can share them with our, with our, our kids, our colleagues, our loved ones. I think that is one of the, you know, there are two challenges that I think that I hope readers leave the book with, which is to try using these tools on their own and to share them with others. Um, we're actually doing research on this right now. So we've created, we've been working on a curriculum, designing a curriculum that teaches kids uh, how, just teaches kids about the science of self-control, how to manage their mind. And um, actually next month, we're going to be rolling out this curriculum in the form of a, a big experiment. We're going to be um, doing this study with about 10,000 high school kids in Clayton County, Georgia, where we look at, A, can students learn this information over the course of a, of a semester? And if so, what are the implications that having this knowledge has for their ability to do well at school, their relationships, their health? I find it remarkable when I think about what I learned in middle school, high school, and how frequently or not I use some of that information. Like I've told this story before, but for me, it's powerful. Like I remember so vividly learning about how the digestive system works in biology in, in junior high and high school. And what stuck out to me from that lesson was peristalsis, like how you move food from entering your mouth all the way to the others. Yeah. You know it too, right? Like, let me ask you, Chase, how many occasions have you had to use that information about peristalsis in your adult life? <laughs> uh, it's it's a handy factoid that when a smart professor brings it up in the podcast, I can simulate that I know what it means. It's the pumping action that the muscles uh, in your GI tract use to move food. That's about very, it, right there. <laughs> yeah, very well said. I, I have I have I have one more usage. Like I've used oh, okay. it. Well, actually, two. I've used it with both of my daughters when they both independently asked me, "How do you how do you get food?" down when you're upside down. I was able to tell them, <laughs> right? Like, but that's it. And I, I like busted my butt to study that stuff. We actually have a sophisticated understanding of the human mind, how the brain gives rise to that mind, of our emotions, how they operate and course through our body and how importantly they can be managed. And that is information that is not only, I think, important for everyone to understand in the same way that we think it's important to understand how the respiratory or digestive system works. But it's also information that I think can pay dividends moving forward. Because on a daily basis, so many of us 
our challenge to manage our emotions to varying degrees. And so this question of what we can do to prevent students from first learning about this when they get to a class, when they're a senior in college, I think, you know, chatter is one attempt, but I think infusing these ideas into the conversations we have with people around us and our kids, teaching kids about it is vitally important. And I think there's a, a huge potential upshot we can reap from doing so. Uh, I am, I'm on a mission to do just that. And with the show and your, your book has been very impactful uh, for me and obviously hundreds of thousands of others who've read it. Uh, so I want to say thank you. And without blowing smoke, I, I want to, if, if maybe, maybe reframe a direction here and have you, I mean, just the, the simplicity of this is it may be, uh, it may be overly simplistic, but I want to try just a little exercise here. I want to say something and I want to like, I want you to sort of reflect on it if I can. And that is the idea that we are not our thoughts. Of course, we as humans have the ability, I don't know if it's metacognition or this meta relationship that we can have. And when, when you tell that to someone who is new to that information, you know, we believe that we are our thoughts. If I'm thinking bad thoughts, therefore I am a bad person. But mindfulness or meditation is an example of being able to watch your thoughts and you watch it arise. And then just as, as watching it arise, you can watch it leave. And as soon as I realized that when I started practicing meditation, that, that was an unlock. Is chatter similar to this? Can we observe it? And is it, should we, ha should that be the relationship that we have with chatter? We are not our chatter. Our chatter is something that is, um, something that can be observed. We, we can either have utility around it or decide that it doesn't serve us and move on. Is it as simple as that? Well, I think what you've described, first of all, is a, is a powerful reframe. And it, it is a kind of distancing reframe, like we talked, we talked earlier about this ability to, to zoom out. When you realize that you are not your thoughts, that's, that's letting you step back to see your thoughts as separate from you. Uh, and I would describe that as one kind of tool uh, okay. that's helpful for managing chatter. It's a powerful tool. And there are many, many others as well. Meditation is super useful for help giving people the experience of, of seeing their thoughts as being separate from themselves. And I think for that reason, is it's really helpful. Um, but there are lots of other, other things you can do as well, like, like the linguistic distancing self-talk or, or some of the other things we talked about. Here, here's one other, other little um, exercise that I think is really useful. Um, a lot of the people that I speak with often tell me, you can't control your emotions. You can't control your chatter. It's just part of who you are. Uh, there's one very famous study that that actually found about 40% of the participants of the study did not think their emotions were, were malleable. They just, they were fixed. It's not something I can get in and intervene with. And I think one of the reasons for that is the whole thinking, feeling process, it's complicated. But here's an easy way to break it down. You and I experience thoughts spontaneously all the time, I would argue. And some of the thoughts that pop into my head, like, I don't know where the hell these thoughts came from. And if I were to be responsible for the thoughts that popped into my head spontaneously as my live, my, I'd be, I'd probably be like 
in big trouble. You know, yeah. um, I was going to say I'd be in jail. <laughs> you'd be in jail. Me too. Solitary confinement. We wouldn't see each other, right? right? So we don't actually have control over the thoughts that pop into our head and the feelings we spontaneously experience. What we do have enormous control over, though, is how we engage with those thoughts and feelings, how we manage yeah. them, and those are two sides to the equation. And so, so I think for me being able to draw a distinction between those two facets of our inner world has been really helpful. So I don't get down on myself if I experience something dark or, or fear inducing, if it just pops into my head, but once it's there, I manage the shit out of it. And uh, to my betterment, to use that very poetic term. But that's so, you know, again, this is, um, having had hundreds and hundreds of guests on the show over a dozen years. And, you know, I've, I'm often doing this, you know, as a, as a part of the show, as a part of the show is started out being very selfish because I wanted to learn from all these people. But, you know, now if I'm asked, like, what are some threads of the show? One of the most common threads, if not, I would say, actually, I want to scratch that. The most common thread is mindset. And the ability to manage one's own inner experience, whether that's meditation, awareness, uh, self-talk, or the ability to manage our self-talk. And it just strikes me as, you know, you talked about these tools and how you can help your children with these tools. Like, why isn't this, I mean, I I guess it, why isn't this mainstream? Here, you and I talking about it, you got a best-selling book, you know, everybody I sort of try and align with has some capacity for this or is aware of it or interested in it or connected to it or a master of it. But you know, what is key, what, what, you know, as someone who's using research dollars and essentially your life's work to push this in the mainstream, why is it so hard to grok? Why, you know, why is it difficult for this to be mainstream? Number one. And number two, what would you encourage those of us who have experienced this to do to help advance it? in pop culture? Well, I think, you know, one of the reasons why it's not mainstream yet is, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll repeat that. We almost got through the whole, whole session without a, without (laughs) a, so I think one of the reasons why it's not mainstream is emotions are, are invisible and have been for a really long time. And there's been a huge bias against talking about these invisible states, right? We, 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 it's easier to wrap our head around things that are concrete, like heart disease. You can, you, can, you can image that. We can now image the brain. That's, I think, helped a great deal. But that's a really recent development if you think about it, right? fMRI, this ability to image different patterns of neural activity correlating with emotional states, that's yeah, only like 20 years or so old. Um, so, so it's relatively recent that we've begun to, to actually concretize our experience of our emotion and our ability to manage it. And, um, and I, I do think we see norms changing, uh, you know, where, if you look at professional sports, for example, over the last few years, there's been a huge swell of support for, uh, respecting mental health issues and, and also promoting mental fitness, which is another another part of the problem here. There's a huge bias against dealing with mental health. We view that as a vulnerability. 
And I think the more we can talk about this as mindsets, mental fitness, as tools of the mind that can be used to better people's situations, that I think is going to be really important for allowing people to engage with this material Mm. freely without feeling like they have to do so undercover with their sunglasses on and a big hat. Uh, someone, Someone told me recently about a study that advertised two programs in the workplace. One was called the mental health program. The other was called mental fitness. The difference in in sign-up rates were huge, like 70, 80% for mental fitness, 10, 15% for mental health. So to some extent, there is a branding issue here that I think we need to be aware of. Um, but but I think these are, these are golden times for um, people like yourself, like me, who know that this work is important and has the potential to fundamentally improve lives. Um, and so, uh, so I think it's an exciting time to be in this space. And, you know, the, the question, how can other people help talk about this stuff to other people, learn about what these tools are and share them with other people. And when, yeah. when your kids or your colleagues are struggling, you know, know that there are things they can do to manage their mind. You don't have to necessarily pop a pill that can be useful at times, but there are lots of easy things to try. And um, just becoming informed, I think, will do do a, a, a huge benefit for all of us. Well, to that end, thank you very much for, you know, as they say, writing the book, but you literally, you know, writing the book. Uh, it's been a profound experience for me to digest that material. Um, obviously, the, the circles that you've run in that are that champion you know, that work, uh, Adam Grant and Malcolm Gladwell, other guests, guests and guests of the show and friends of the show. Um, it's not an accident that, you know, many of the brightest minds, top performers in our culture employ these things. And it's my hope. I, the, the, the tip that you just shared about changing how we talk about it, the, the mental fitness versus mental health, uh, just as a, even, you know, whether or not we're playing, playing with labels, just as a, even if it's a Trojan horse concept to, to get it, you know, to people to be more open to it, uh, that is a, a gift that I will put to work immediately. Uh, but I, I genuinely want to say thank you for being on the show, for writing Chatter and for doing the work. I'm very excited. I'm going to follow your work up on this study down in Georgia. I can't wait to see uh, the early results and consider uh, yourself a friend of the show if we can ever help you uh, share your work with the world. It's very profound. And I, I want to say a big personal thank you. Well, thank you. Um, uh, speechless for that incredible um, set of comments. And it was just a delight to, to be here. So thanks for having me. Is, is there anywhere else besides the book that you'd want to steer? You know, our community here is, is they're very passionate about this. Obviously, they're going to they're gonna go out and buy the book, Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters and How to Harness It. But where else would you st- steer them, if anywhere? Um, if they want to go to my website, www.ethancrosswithak.com, um, they can not only learn about the book, but there are links to my research lab and, um, lots of, lots of articles and other resources that deal with this space and, and plenty more that we didn't have, have time to chat about. So plenty of food for thought there. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show and, uh, Ethan Cross, uh, we appreciate you. For those out there in the world, check out the book, the site, and uh, until next time, we bid you all adieu.
All right. Hey, thanks so much for listening. But And before you go, I wanted to say I really appreciate you joining me today. These conversations are the highlights of my week. And I'm always learning something new from these guests, hopefully alongside you and you get value. Now, I know that so many of you have asked how you can support the podcast. Uh, we're sponsored by Creative Live. They foot the bill, so I don't have to put ads for uh, underwear or cheap sunglasses or anything else like that uh, at the front end of the podcast. So just a handful of thoughts here. First, the hardworking, talented crew at Creative Live would love it. We would all love it if you are a subscriber uh, to Creative Live for you know 149 bucks a year, you get access to 2,000 classes. Um, if you are not, if you want to check that out, that's at creativelive.com/slash/creatorpass, all in word. Also, importantly, sharing the takeaways and providing links to the show for any of the platforms that you've got social reach or a footprint. Even if your community is small, I believe that's the best way to spread the show. Small. Uh, connected, like-minded communities. Um, also, leaving a review uh, at any of the platforms where you listen to the show is huge for having it come up early in search results. So just a, a couple ways that you can help support the show. Uh, most of them are free. Uh, if you do want to check out the Creator Pass, I think you would love the subscription to Creative Live. But I just want you to know I am so grateful and um, hopefully you enjoyed this episode and our get your knees bent waiting for the next one to come out, which is probably, I don't know, tomorrow or the next day or we will never stop. Thanks for being a part of the show.